Is anything too wonderful for God? Please be seated. This weekend, we celebrate Juneteenth. That is June 19th, 1865, the day when General Gordon Granger of the U.S. Army told enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, that slavery had ended and they were free. It was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation and two months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee had formally surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox. Some Confederates not getting the news had continued to fight on. In fact, the last battle of the Civil War was actually in Texas in May of that year. Granger arrived to impose order in a chaotic situation to deliver this message and to establish some new institutions, notably the Freedmen's Bureau. His proclamation on Juneteenth included these words. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States of America, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and property rights between former masters and slaves. Although Juneteenth has long been celebrated by black Texans and others, this is only our second year of keeping it as a national holiday. It's an occasion for joy for sure at the wonder of liberation. And it's also a time to reflect soberly on the endurance of white supremacy and anti-black racism in our national life and the many ways the promise of Granger's words has not yet been fulfilled. If that were not enough for today, as refugees and asylum seekers arrive in our city and state in crisis numbers, I have to note that World Refugee Day is the day after Juneteenth, June 20th. We can respond to these new neighbors with kindness and creative welcome or with callousness, fear, and cruelty, and both are in evidence among us. And of course, this is LGBTQ Pride Month, in which we celebrate the image of God in God's beloved queer people and also stand fiercely for the safety and dignity of those whose rights and indeed existence is under threat even now. All of this is to say that the confluence of deeply important issues on this Sunday reminds us of the intersectional nature of our work for justice and of our vision of God's realm. We belong to one another and the liberation of each of us requires the liberation of all of us. Each of us is impacted by race, national origin, gender and sexuality, economic status, and more. We stand differently in relation to these issues and to each other regarding them. We have to learn to listen to each other across differences we have the opportunity to develop compassion and empathy for each other through our very particular stories, to repent of our complicity in oppression, 
and to recognize our common ground even as we honor our different histories. Is anything too wonderful for God? There is cause for celebration today. Indeed, celebration is essential, and there is tremendous need. Our texts for today speak to these issues in some provocative ways. The passage from Genesis continues the story of Abraham and Sarah, recipients of God's promise that they will be the ancestors of a great nation, and they will be a blessing to all the world. At this point in the story, it's a promise long deferred, at least 25 years, which appears to have zero hope of fulfillment. As we've been told repeatedly, they have no children together, and they are very old, and Sarah is barren. Never mind the supposition that infertility is somehow only a woman's problem or that her only value is in her childbearing. There have been quite a number of questionable twists and turns in the saga of these great forebears in faith. At one point, when the couple sojourned in Egypt, Abraham passed Sarah off as his sister. He gave her to Pharaoh, apparently she was very beautiful, for Pharaoh's sexual use in exchange for Abraham's own safety and considerable riches. Later, as we will hear in more detail next week, Sarah, despairing of ever bearing a child herself, gave her Egyptian slave woman Hagar to Abraham as a forced surrogate. Once Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, the jealous Sarah abused her harshly, and after Isaac is born, she will drive Hagar into the wilderness, presumably to die there. Womanist scholar Will Gaffney says that Sarah exercises privilege and experiences peril, both together. Thus she serves as a cautionary tale bearing witness to the temptation to exercise whatever privilege we may have over someone else, rather than standing with them in shared peril, thereby extending and transforming our privilege. There is some irony in hearing the story of Sarah and Abraham on Juneteenth, and yet knowing its context allows us to reflect upon our own privilege and peril and how they shape our interactions with others. Meanwhile, the promise comes yet again that from these two flawed and faithful people, God will make a great nation. Today's text finds Abraham at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. One tradition says that the oak at Mamre, where Abraham is sojourning, is as old as the world. It's a place of divine encounter. Three mysterious visitors arrive. Abraham runs to meet them and bows low, urging them to stay a while, rest, have their feet washed, and have a meal. They accept his hospitality. The last time I preached two weeks ago was Trinity Sunday. I can't help but remember that one of the most famous and to me most satisfying images of the Trinity is taken from this very scene. The mysterious three are at table, clearly deep in delighted conversation with one another, 
And they make space for the, the viewer who is contemplating the image, who is both host and guest. You may have seen it in the great icon written by Andrei Rublev, but there are also modern renditions that recast the three with diverse genders and ethnicities. Genesis is not trying to represent the Trinity, of course, but it is telling of a deep encounter with divine mystery in an inviting community of care. Hospitality is one of the essential values of biblical people, desert dwellers, fully aware that their lives could depend on someone welcoming them. And here, hospitality is the medium of God's power and presence and blessing. It is what allows a life-giving message to be both given and received. This scene is also evoked in the letter to the Hebrews, when the writer says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. It encourages us, as we confront the enormous needs of asylum seekers in our midst, as well as any others we deem strangers, to be alert to the wisdom and the blessing that comes from making them welcome. When the visitors have enjoyed their meal, they ask Abraham where his wife Sarah is and tell him that she will have a son. Sarah is not at the table. She's listening from inside the tent, and she bursts into laughter. The text emphasizes that she and Abraham are both old. Sarah is well past menopause. Both I am old and my husband is old, she says. Shall I have pleasure? Is she speaking of sexual pleasure? Is she talking about the longed-for joy of holding her child in her arms? Or both? Or maybe the end of social shame that she's carried for decades? I imagine it's all of the above, but I also imagine her laugh is the rueful response of one who has experienced way too much disappointment to believe in such ridiculous promises. But the visitor, now identified as the Lord, says to Abraham, why did Sarah say I am too old? Is anything too wonderful for God? Sarah, suddenly afraid, denies her laughter, but the visitor says, knowingly, but I think kindly, oh, but you did laugh, Sarah. A little later, she conceives and bears a son. She names him Yitzhak, Isaac, which means he laughs. This time, it's the laughter of astonished joy, the response to what seems too good to be true and yet is true, the dream long deferred that yet breaks into the light of day and transforms everything. This laughter reminds me of Juneteenth. It bursts from people embracing freedom against all odds. It is joy at the ordinary and extraordinary goodness of God, the goodness of life. Even in the face of enduring racism and the unfinished promise of equality, even though there is so much work yet to do, it is a laughter and a joy that is born and gives life to tenacious hope all along the stony way.
In her book, Resurrection Hope, theologian Kelly Brown Douglas talks about her experience participating in the Black Lives Matter protests after the murder of George Floyd. She came wrestling with rage and despair, but as she joined the vast, diverse crowd seeking justice, she unexpectedly found herself laughing. She writes, to laugh is a signal of transcendence. It signals a discrepancy between what is and what ought to be, the discrepancy between our unjust present and God's just future. And so it is that God's resurrection of Jesus after his crucifying death was nothing other than God's last laugh over the crucifying powers of evil that declare their greatness in our world. On Juneteenth, such joyful laughter is both already and not yet, the promise fulfilled and the promise calling us on. It is a day to celebrate and rest in the joy of black lives that matter profoundly. Is anything too wonderful for God? Matthew 2 tells a story of the promise of God making humble but powerful inroads in our world. In today's gospel, Matthew says that as Jesus went about his ministry, he saw the crowds and was moved with compassion. Literally, the word means his guts were wrenched by their suffering. They were harassed and helpless, oppressed, abandoned, beaten up like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' response is instructive to those of us who get overwhelmed by the world's problems. He does not work longer hours or push himself to go faster. Instead, he prays and he tells his friends to pray. And then in answer to their prayer, he sends 12 of them out to do the very same work he himself has been doing, preaching, healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, proclaiming and enacting the realm of God. They're an unlikely bunch, really. Bumbling, eager Peter, Matthew, the tax collector, even Judas, who will betray him. They are sent here only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they are all men, apparently. But that is not the final scope of their mission, as we will see as we progress through Matthew. The work is evolving, and they are learning as they share the message and the blessing. Jesus tells them to travel light. They're vulnerable, dependent on the kindness of strangers. They must receive hospitality if their work is to be fruitful. It's not only about giving, it's about receiving it. When they find a house in which they are welcome, they are to let their peace come upon that house, a living, vibrant energy, sharing and multiplying the taste of the life of God's kingdom. This is the core of justice work for me, grounded in God's great love for all creation. It's the recognition that God's love calls us to respect the dignity of every human being and fosters our interdependence, our joy in mutual giving and receiving. God yearns for and calls us to share life in its fullness with equity and delight together. The promise is that in the doing, the going, 
the work of justice, we will be changed. We can develop the hopeful muscles we need for the long haul. We can practice prayer and joyful rest. In persistent and active hope, as our passage from Romans reminds us, God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Is anything too wonderful for God? Beloved, today, as we center Black joy and celebrate the wonderful message and reality of Juneteenth, it is a vital part of our common American history and our common future. We'll have a forum following this service in which we'll explore both the promise of this day and the work yet to be done. As we commit ourselves to that work, may our compassion also grow for all who suffer injustice because of race or gender and sexuality, economics, history or national origin. May we each see how deeply our flourishing depends on justice and peace for everyone, and may our hearts and lives be shaped by the vision of God's just future. Nothing is too wonderful for God. Amen.